From a work perspective, relative to being an Airbnb host, it could be a little less upside depending on the property, but it's it's less, you know, you're not doing all the turns. So the workload's a little less intense. It sort of sits, it's somewhere in the middle between a traditional rental and an Airbnb, right? So it's uh, probably more work overall uh, relative to being a traditional single family rental operator, but certainly a lot less than hey, I've got people coming in every, you know, three days a weekend. You know, there's less of a kind of burnout factor there. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Frank Furman from PadSplit. And today, we're talking about co-living, a new or maybe not quite as new as you might think, way to earn greater cash flows, greater gross revenues, and hopefully net revenues from our properties by breaking the properties up and leasing out the rooms individually, and also the platform that Frank and his co-founders created to help investors like you do exactly that. We also talk about the differences between co-living and short-term rentals like Airbnb. You're probably familiar with Airbnb, but Airbnb has some pretty significant regulatory risks depending on where you are. And Frank makes a case today for why they think the co-living regulatory risk may be lower in many areas than short-term rentals like Airbnb. Makes a very interesting case for it. And you can tune in, just keep listening. You're going to learn more. Really interesting stuff. This may be a way to help abate some of the affordable living, affordable housing shortage issues that plague many areas just by making better use of the existing housing stock that we already have and the housing stock that's coming down the road. How can we use it better? And I think Frank and his company are helping address exactly that. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate. If you're interested in learning more and applying to join our Passive Investor Club for access to our passive commercial real estate investment opportunities, go to investwithtaylor.com. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, I ask, I really appreciate it. If you take a moment and leave us a rating and review, five stars if you don't mind, that helps the most. I ask you that because that helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. I'm always real. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Really appreciate that feedback. And I appreciate you helping the show grow. And a way you can help someone around you, someone that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please do share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. If you haven't done so yet, do not forget to subscribe to the show. That way you'll catch every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest is Frank Furman from PadSplit. Really interesting story, really interesting strategy. I had a great conversation with him, and I think you're going to learn so much today. Without any further ado, here we go. Frank, thank you for joining us today. Taylor, thanks for having me. Appreciate the invite. Hey, it's been great talking with you so far. Great to get some insights on your business and how things are going. Really great stuff. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your business, can you tell us about your background and then you know we'll dive into the business? Sure. So as far as my background, I, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, went to the Naval Academy. It's kind of a you know, little bit of a, a, a timing thing. 9-11 happened when I was a junior in high school. And it seemed like kind of the thing to do. So you went to the Naval Academy, decided to become a Marine Corps officer, did a quick stint, graduate school at Johns Hopkins, uh, but then spent the next kind of seven years as a Marine Corps infantry officer, mostly stationed in California, did a couple tours to Afghanistan. And then really around, uh, I guess, 2012 through 2014, I was stationed in DC. I was, you know, I'd gotten married, 
we were, you know, thinking about what came next in life. And, you know, I was doing what everyone in the military does, which is, you know, saying, oh, maybe I'll go to business school. I haven't really decided, you know, what does an infantry officer do in, in the real world? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> and then, so we found out uh, we were having our first child, uh, Rudyard, who's now seven. And I kind of thought, oh, oh my God, you know, business school, you know, what am I going to feed this child? I should get a job. So I, uh, I took a job in management consulting uh, with McKinsey, moved to London, spent a couple of years there. When we were having our second uh, child, uh, Byron, my now five-year-old son, we decided to transfer uh, to Atlanta. So been here for the past five years. After you know McKinsey, I decided to take a job at Georgia Pacific and kind of got there, mostly took the job out of a work-life balance kind of a, you know, a driver and probably got bored. I, and maybe the balance was too, too far skewed. You know, I ended up going from kind of a, you know, 60 hours a week to well, less than 40, I think is, is how I would term it. And, uh, you know, get in good shape. And then you think, man, like, what am I going to do? It's Monday afternoon. You know, what am I going to accomplish this week? So I, I kind of started freelancing. I was doing freelance consulting. I was kind of, uh, just looking for new opportunities. I just knew it wasn't long, going to be a long-term opportunity for me. And my brother-in-law, Atticus, who uh, had started a string of kind of successful real estate businesses and uh, was part of the reason why we moved to Atlanta in the first place. He'd been, he's been here for about 20 years now. And he's like, you know, I've got this idea. I've sort of been in the back of my mind for years. Uh, it's this room rental kind of business. Um, you know, you want to help me out with it. I'm it, sort of just thinking about it and want to give it a try. And I was like, sure, I'm bored. You know, I got, I got time, you know, good idea, bad idea. Who cares? You know, I need something to do. And, uh, you know, started with a property of his, um, kind of took it from there. You know, it was, it was something that he'd actually been doing since 2009. You know, he'd bought a property in Southwest Atlanta at the time he was just getting a start. He'd been a commercial broker. Um, and that business had gone under with the crash, he was on the land side. So it kind of hit early, but he's looking around town and he's, man, you can buy a property for $20,000. Clearly I should be buying properties. And you know, spoiler alert, that was a good, that was a good plan. <laughs> was so, a good uh, yeah. So, you know, he had a partner built up this, this portfolio of single family homes and then about 500 apartments and, and so on. But he bought one in 2009 and, you know, it's kind of cut up funny, but you know, he's planning on turning a section eight rental and the two neighbors came by, you know, Mr. Otis and Mr. Mitch and said, Hey, Hey man, our house is being foreclosed on. You know, we've been renting rooms here. We want to rent rooms in in your rooming house. And he's like, ah, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, brother, that this is a rooming house, and we'll pay you a hundred bucks a week. And he's looking at it and he's thinking, man, I got four bedrooms. I can get eight hundred from Section Eight. I can get a hundred a week. You know, I'll, I'll give it a go. And so he did. And did another one in 2012. And over that intervening time, you know, noticed how much more profitable it was and some of the kind of unexpected benefits around co-living and how, you know, you tend to have fewer conflicts because people were strangers, right? They didn't know each other rather than if you, you know, husbands and wives or boyfriends and girlfriends or brothers, that kind of thing. And then, but there were still lots of challenges, still operationally difficult. Collecting the payments was a challenge. You know, there's, there were, there were downsides to it, but as we, you know, began to look at it, you know, as he was looking at it in kind of 2017, you think, okay, well, Things have changed. One, obviously, that just the price of housing has gone up. The conversation around affordable housing is just much more prominent within society. Technology has changed. You know, in 2009, very few people had smartphones, but today everyone has a smartphone. And the fintech world has changed. 
you know, that used to be a business that was all cash and money orders and that sort of thing. Whereas today, anyone can walk into a Walmart, put money on a prepaid debit card and pay anything electronically within minutes. So all sorts of things have changed that maybe, you know, made us think, hey, maybe this isn't a niche side hustle business. Maybe it's something big. And it's something that, you know, oftentimes, you know, to sort of fast forward to today, because obviously we started PadSplit and that's what it became along with our, our third co-founder, John O'Brien. But, you know, people come to us all the time and say, oh, you know, I kind of get it. You know, room rentals, I see that. I see how people save money, you know, cool. Maybe I'll ask my kids, you know, they they would understand, you know, the sharing space and millennials and stuff. And I'm like, no, no, ask your grandmother. Because this is actually how people used to live, you know, and uh, if you were a single working person, you know, working in a factory or doing something that was relatively low income and you weren't married, you boarded. You know, that was what, that was how people lived. It was how people got by this kind of modern conception that has really only been with us for the last couple of decades of, you know, you're a single person, you have to have your own apartment. And then during that time, just like with everything else in life, prices have gone up. I mean, so take Atlanta where we are to have a apartment, a new apartment, you need 760 square feet and a parking spot. Well, the parking spot in the city probably costs 40 grand. So how many cheap apartments are being built? Well, none, because it's totally impossible. So, you know, how do we kind of get back to, you know, it's, it's not a new idea, the idea of renting a room. In fact, it's something that one, we've all probably done at some point in our lives, whether it's student housing or, you know, think the Golden Girls or something like that. But then also just uh, even today, I mean, I've, I have six people in my house. It's because I have three kids and, you know, even au pair lives with us. And I'm, I'm not crazy. It's just this is, you know, <laughs> I share space. You know, unfortunately, I'm the only person who pays rent here. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's maybe where it says more about me uh, but than anything else. But everyone shares space, really. Uh, this idea of having totally your own space is what's kind of new. So it's how do you bring that? Hey, bring it to everybody and kind of solve this problem nationwide. Wow, that's awesome, and 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 quite the journey there. Um, and I think the most interesting thing is what this can do for investors. I mean, obviously the mm. the affordable housing question is out there in in many major cities. Atlanta, I'm sure we have it here in Richmond, and and really mm. all the major metros out there have a huge shortage of housing. Um, and and that's good for real estate investors, but kind of what we found or what people have found lately is like, okay, you want to go buy a single family? Well, nothing that's on the market is going to really cash flow uh, in the yeah. long term, at least with the standard model. But it looks like in this case, what you're offering is really an opportunity to to juice that cash flow and find you know a different model. Exactly, and I mean, everyone knows that the way you make money in investing is. Uh, it's kind of be ahead of the curve, right? And sure. so if you bought single family homes 10 years ago, you look like a genius today, right? Because they've all appreciated and you could buy, you know, the the you know, the 1% rule, you know, may uh may she rest in peace, you know. Uh, obviously <laughs> not right. not the case today. Uh, you know, and of course people see that, right? They see success and then they they mimic it. So now, and some of that's due to technology and the the ability of people to do desktop uh um, research on properties and all that. But now so much capital is chasing single family uh, rentals and there's, you know, interest rates are so low and, and so on that, yeah, I mean, people are buying at a, at a four cap, which is just unreal. And, you know, you look at it, prices are at a point where, you know, rents always lag and, and rents are going to go up. You know, that's, that's, that is going to have to happen, but people are just 
praying they'll make it up with a ton of leverage and a super low interest rate. And that's, you know, that's that's fine. Um, but we looked at it and thought, look, there's other ways to cash flow on property. Now other people have done Airbnb. There's, you know, there's other ways to kind of attack that. And we're one other way, right? So the concept is simple. I mean, there's, again, I'm a, I'm a former Marine, so, you know, don't make me do a ton of math you know, in public, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things where our, one of our initial insights was certain properties are, are great single family rentals, right? They're small, they're efficient, um, you know, they're in the the kind of the middle of the bell curve in terms of the market, right? You know, there are three, two in a decent zip code and, you know, so on and so forth. Well, part of the problem is everyone sort of snatched those up, right? Because I'm not the only person with that insight. And then the other piece of it is that's fine, but there are properties that are just outside, you know, there's, they're a little bit bigger. There may be a little bit more urban, there may be uh not in the exact same zip codes that aren't great rentals necessarily. And one of our early insights was, you know, if you have a bigger rental with more bedrooms, one, you don't really generate extra revenue for the space, right? If you get five bedrooms in a house, no one's paying for the fourth or fifth bedrooms, really. But it is a liability, right? If you have to turn that unit, it's extra square footage, you pay by the square foot, so your costs are higher. You know, maybe it's more yard and, you know, more lawn care, that kind of thing. So there's the challenges to it. Well, for us, the bedroom is your revenue generating unit, just like an apartment is for an apartment complex. So how do you take that? How do you capture and monetize that underutilized space? And then also you're shopping in a part of the market that the iBuyers aren't, right? That other investors aren't. And so, you know, initially we started with people saying, okay, I've got these bigger rentals. They underperform relative to my smaller ones. How can I juice those returns? And we've really turned into a business where people say, hey, I'm trying to buy bedrooms. Um, how do I find these properties that are optimized for this model, you know, and, and honestly, a lot of them are kind of older housing stock from when families are bigger, that kind of thing. Sometimes it's converting basements or living rooms, dining rooms, that sort of thing. But how do I kind of maximize those revenue generating units? And yeah, I mean, we're generally, you know, double or so the yield of a traditional single family rental. Awesome. So I'd really like to hone in on the differences between your model and the short-term rental or mm. Airbnb model. And then, you know, we'll probably, I'm, I'm going to warn you now, I'm going to bring up the the regulatory risk because to my mind, sitting on the, on the sidelines from the, these two strategies is there seems to be a lot more regulatory risk with the short-term rental Airbnb model than yours, but I don't know. So yeah. tell us the differences and let's break into it. Absolutely. So you know, one way to think about it is we're very similar to Airbnb from a product perspective, right? It's two-sided marketplace. You have landlords or hosts in our in our uh, parlance on one side, and then for us, residents, members, but guests in Airbnb on the other, right? And the difference is, unlike Airbnb or VRBO, which are fractional in terms of time, one occupancy, one occupancy, we're fractional in terms of space, right? Now, there's plenty of other differences, right? We uh, Airbnbs are everywhere. You know, it's an incredible business. I I applaud them. You know, this is this is not uh, giving them any trouble. They do everything from tents to parking spaces to mansions to everything in between. You know, we're we're focused on co living. We tend to be metro areas, so we're you know Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, Richmond, Tampa, Jacksonville, Indianapolis, New Orleans. Metro areas, maybe eventually will be more or less everywhere, but certainly today focused on, you know, kind of metro areas, uh, Sunbelt, Midwest, and so on. Obviously, we, for us, you know, it's not 
tourists, right? It's not people coming into town for vacation or this or that. It's it's people who live and work in the community, right? And so they're long-term. Average stay is about nine and a half months. From a work perspective, relative to being an Airbnb host, it could be a little less upside depending on the property, but it's it's less, you know, you're not doing all the turns. So the workload's a little less intense, sort of sits it's somewhere in the middle between a traditional rental and an Airbnb, right? So it's uh, probably more work overall uh, relative to being a traditional single family rental operator, but certainly a lot less than, hey, I've got people coming in every, you know, three days a weekend, you know, there's less of kind of burnout factor there. And the assets look a little bit different. So, um, you know, you can have an Airbnb and some of the most expensive real estate in the country. Workforce housing, you can't, right? We're a workforce housing company. So we're much more located in transition neighborhoods, that kind of thing. Obviously, we're really just on on kind of bigger units, you know, that 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 sort of thing. We've actually had a number of Airbnbs, previous Airbnbs that have become pad splits. And, you know, it's really about optimizing for the asset. So, you know, if you're in a beach town, it should definitely be an Airbnb. Uh, but if it's a bigger property in a transition neighborhood that, you know, maybe gets dinged on reviews uh, due to the neighborhood or, or that kind of thing, or it's just, frankly, a lot of work to to get to and manage, might be better pad split, you know, if you've got the bedrooms to make it work. So it, it's really kind of a different sort of asset strategy. Um, on the regulatory front, we have, I would say, different regulatory challenges. And it's because we have different... Uh, you know, enemies, so to speak, you know, that word is pretty strong. So obviously Airbnb, they're like Airbnbs were at one point legal everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Part of the reason they have more regulatory challenges than we do is because of their success, right? And, uh, legislation has been written to um, counteract uh, Airbnb and so on. Now, there are really two general, we'll call it three against Airbnb. One is really from neighbors who say, I live in a single family neighborhood and a bunch of tourists came in and they threw a party, right? And they made a ton of noise and so on and so forth. And I'm mad about it. Okay, fine. The other one is coming from municipalities. I think it holds a lot less water, but it certainly has gained currency, which is around affordable housing. And the idea being all this housing stock is being used up to, um, son's coming in to investigate, just like I said he would. There's some candy in this room. <laughs> it's all good. And, uh, you know, so municipalities, and I've had many municipalities come in talk to me about this and say, listen, you know, Airbnb is driving up the the cost of housing because single family homes are being converted into these rentals. I don't find the data all that compelling, but it's certainly, uh, that idea is firmly, firmly lodged um, in the minds of many kind of policymakers. Again, I, I think it's really hard to decouple the appreciation of the past 10 years that would have happened without Airbnb with the fact that Airbnb has been around for 10 years. And, uh, you know, it's sort of, to me, it's, you know, I think they're hard to decouple, but either way, that that is a reason. And then the third piece is uh, hotels really don't like Airbnb. I think that's the big business. one. Yeah, exactly. So they have, they face a, a very organized and well-resourced competitor in the marketplace. For us, what we tend to deal with is much more similar to neighborhoods that have issues with Section 8 rentals, right? We're a workforce housing company. Some people some neighborhoods don't really particularly like rentals locally, right? True. And that's true for any any investor. You know, there's no way around the fact that one, people are renters, they're more transient than homeowners. You know, that's that's going to happen. Um, the complaint that we tend to get on the regulatory front is much more around the number of occupants, right? And it's almost always people think it's, you know, like a top-down municipal challenge. It's really bottom-up for neighbors, right? So, you know, our 
our members, you know, the residents, uh, they're, they're people and they are, uh, cut from the crooked timber that is humanity. And sometimes they <laughs> fall short, right? Sometimes they park like jerks, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, someone parks in front of someone's mailbox or, you know, in front of someone's house or, you know, any of those things. Neighbors don't like it. They complain to code enforcement because that's what people in our society do and they don't like what neighbors are doing. And someone's going to cite you if, if someone calls all the time. And, and also kind of get back to that strategy around houses. Because the normal pad split tends to be a bigger house where investors have gone out and say, said, okay, how do I optimize for this kind of investment? They tend not to buy previous rentals. They tend to buy previous single, you know, owner occupied uh, properties. And so people, you know, we've had neighbors say, hey, that used to be owned by, you know, the, the Smiths. They sold to these awful investors. It turned into a rental property in my neighborhood. I won't stand for it. So we tend, we, we get a different kind of neighbor complaint. It's around uh, cars, less around partying per se, but, you know, we, we, again, we're workforce housing. As I've said many times, people on shift work, right? People who go to work at 11 o'clock at night and come back at six in the morning, neighborhoods don't always like that. So we, we tend to get that kind of complaint around the, the who is in the house. Now, we also don't have the same kind of competitor base the way that Airbnb does. Our closer comp, you know, we don't compete with hotels. We don't really compete with apartments, but to the extent that we compete with apartments, apartments are much more fragmented. You know, you don't really have brands. Um, we really only compete against Class C. We compete against extended stay motels to some extent. I mean, that's certainly in the consideration set for our customers. But one extended stay that is much smaller than the hotel industry and people don't like them. You know, it's not like Marriott or Hilton where, you know, they're, everyone's like, oh, that's glamorous. And I like those companies. It's everyone hates extended stay motels. So no one cares what they think. They don't lobby <laughs> the same way. Uh, right. um, so, you know, and, and I, you know, I actually feel for the extended stay because, you know, we're in similar businesses. So I, I don't hate them, but it's, uh, it's one of those things. So we don't, we don't deal with the same sort of competitor lobbying. I would love to believe someday that we're as uh, big as Airbnb and thus have uh, as entrenched a competitor set who wants to complain about us. We're not there yet. Uh, so maybe we'll get there. But we tend to have fewer kind of formal regulatory challenges. Almost all short-term rental regulations uh, kind of get around that by saying, hey, anything less than 30 days is you know, constrained, forbidden, must be registered, you know, whatever, whatever they're doing in the municipality. We have a 31-day minimum, so it doesn't actually really apply to any of us, and that's obviously by design. So we definitely deal with complaints. You know, that's part of being in the real estate business. It's part of being in a rental business. We tend to have fewer strict regulatory challenges, or to the extent that we do, it tends to be, hey, someone parked on the grass. Look, that's a citation. Uh, You can get a ticket for it. That's super frustrating. But it also has nothing to do with pad split per se or co-living. It's just kind of uh, a tenant who's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So yeah, we we definitely. I wouldn't say that uh, our our team isn't busy dealing with those challenges because certainly they are, but it's different from the short term rental market. I think you're always going to have, I mean, no matter what kind of real estate you're in, rental real estate, you're always going to have mm-hmm. something like that, a, a problem tenant, if you will. Because to me, yeah. me, if I was in this position as a tenant, I mean, I care about my car, I care about not getting a citation, and I care about not making the neighbors mad. So I'm going to try yeah. to park res- respectfully, but like some people aren't going to do that. So. Yeah. It's just part of the deal. Now, for the the host side, what would you say is your 
ideal client profile? Like what's the the person that you're looking to reach? Because we, again, talked about this a bit before recording. I'm very curious about that. Yeah. So um, our hosts run the gamut from retail investors who maybe this is their first real estate investment, right? And they're going to do one, you know, they're employed full time doing something else. And this is their side hustle, you know, kind of the hobby, you know, however you want to think about it to institutional investors where they have tons of single family homes or other investments. And this is sort of an alternative investment vehicle for them. Where I think we tend to do the best, um, even though I love all our customers, if you're listening, but, uh, you know, if, I, if I'm going to pick, you know, what our kind of ideal customer is. 80-20 rule. Yeah, 80-20 rule. Yeah, is, is really sub-institutional investors who are professional, like they're, they're pros, they are real estate investors. That is their, their day job, so to speak. But they're not, they're essentially managing their own money. So the, the way to think about that is um, our challenge with the, the kind of that first group, the, your kind of small investor, is just a scale problem, right? It's, uh, it's a pretty steep learning curve. Um, we're happy to talk through with people and train them and onboard them and so on. But obviously, um, someone who's doing it as a side hustle isn't going to scale with us the way that we'd love. So even though we love them, you know, that's, uh, that, that's, that's the truth. And then on the kind of larger institutional side, tend to have more constraints on their money. It just takes a lot longer to get going. So if you're backed by a you know teacher's pension fund, uh, you know wherever, and you're managing that money for a big fund, well, tons of approvals and the investment committee, and hey, is there rel- you know regulatory risk in this municipality versus that municipality, and just all sorts of levels of review that make it challenging. So yeah, we've tended to do better with. You know, investors who are serious, it's their day job. They kind of, they don't ask us for a general contractor because they know a general contractor. You know, they don't ask us for a broker because maybe they are a broker and know how to execute, but they're, they're kind of an investment committee of one or two and a little bit more nimble. So that's kind of our sweet spot where they're, you know, sophisticated enough to know what they're doing, to know their market, um, but also kind of small enough and nimble enough to be able to execute and, and understand their own risk and take it, you know, it's kind of the thing. Interesting. Well, I, I certainly appreciate that. And, and, you know, throughout our conversation, both before we were recording, you know, for the listeners, you just finished a, a series B round of funding. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to learn a little bit about your experience dealing with venture capitalists, which was fascinating. But we're not going to get into here. You definitely know what you're talking about, though, from the gamut of investors, right? We won't repeat anything that I said about any of those folks. No, I'm just kidding. We, uh, we obviously are very thankful for our venture investors as well, who've been great partners for us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I love it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or 
using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Frank, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Okay, so I'm even going to take it all out of, take away all real estate just to make it uh, fun. But um, I once went to this uh, New Year's party with, uh, I was staying with friends uh, out in Arizona and said, oh, you know, this big shot has this you know, incredible New Year's party. We're going to go. And the gentleman's name is Lanny Martin. He's this very, very kind of hyper successful businessman. And he he does this thing every year where he says, okay, I'm going to donate money. To, I'm going to invest. You're going to, everyone's going to pick stocks and, you know, we're going to have a competition. We're going to evaluate it next year. And, you know, it's, it's going to be depending on your performance. And this was 2009. So it's just after, you know, market gets pummeled, everyone's freaking out. The previous year, everyone had been wiped out. Um, someone had done, you know, nationwide and, you know, all these AIG was one of the picks, you know, <laughs> so a lot, of, a lot of trepidation going into this sure. uh, 2009. And, and I picked Valero, uh, the, the oil company and, you know, and this guy's a billionaire and turns out I won. And, wow. uh, he visited me personally to congratulate me and give me a bottle of wine. And, uh, you know, he was, he was like, man, like, how did you know? And I'm like, it was honestly a complete and total guess that I'd, I didn't know it was, this was part of the party because I was just a random guest, but, uh, he was very gracious about it and flew out to congratulate me for it. So, uh, I would say that because it made me feel, you know, this is a guy who's made, uh, you know, billion dollars in his life. And he's like, man, like, how did you just know the market so well? And I'm like, I, can't give away all my secrets, Mr. Martin. So that's, I think that's it. <laughs> well, I think that really goes to the heart of what I'm trying to do with this show is help people <laughs> realize that people that are out there picking stocks kind of suck at it. All of Yeah. Them. Guessing. Yeah, totally. I so was guessing. You were guessing and you won, which I think underpins, you know, everything in, in the intelligent investor and, and, and so many things out there, but we won't get bogged down in that right now. That's yeah. awesome. Awesome. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other mm. side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? So the worst was one, I guess you would say it's almost one that I didn't make. But um, when I first moved out to California, I was stationed in a, in a place called 29 Palms, which is middle of the desert. It's kind of three hours east of Los Angeles. And so I knew I was going to be out there for four years. And this was, it's actually around the same time as early 2009. And, you know, houses were selling for not a whole lot, right? And you know, look at this market. I'm like, I'm going to be here for four years. I'm in the Marine Corps. Like, my paycheck's going to come no matter what. I'm going to room with friends, whatever. I should just buy a house. I'm insane to just pay rent, and throw money <laughs> away. And I'm, I'm a bit of a cheapskate by nature. And by a bit, I mean a whole lot. And I mean, I lived out there for four years without furniture. You know, slept on the floor, like with a sleeping bag. It was carpeted. But you know, I'm, I'm a cheapskate. And I need to own that. But I'm looking around, I'm like, you know, you can buy a perfectly acceptable house for a hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, you think about it, rents there for such a house were probably like 12 or 1300 bucks. I'm like, Oh, this thing paid off in a couple of years, but my cheapskate nature kicked in. I was like, what could you buy for $75,000? Oh, no. Because 
then I would be saving $25,000. You're like someone writing me a check. And I toured five properties. And this would have been the first house I ever bought. And, you know, I had some, I had enough money for down payment, all these things. I could have done a hundred grand, but I didn't because, you know, I mean, let's just say you were getting what you paid for. And that missing 25 grand was in like, you know, not having holes in the roof and uh, squatters and that kind of thing. And I had such a bad experience because of my being a cheapskate that I didn't buy any house. Then I rented a house and then I, I still shared with friends and so on, but obviously I was still just paying rent for the four years. And I've made the mistake every couple of years to go back and look at the, you know, the houses that I considered and passed mm-hmm. on. And I was like, you know, and there were $300,000 and they could have been cash flow and easy for, you know, the past 10 years. And I'm like, I'm an idiot because, you know, I just, you extrapolate poorly sometimes with investments. You're like, I can buy X. What if I just buy it for less? And just, that's not how life works usually. So that's probably my worst. That's true. To be fair to yourself, I think all of us that have been real estate investors for some number of years, especially in the recent market cycle, are looking at every single property we didn't buy or just about <laughs> and saying, yeah. what was I thinking? So, you know. If that's that's consolation. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? So, gosh, uh, let's see how, how many have I learned really the hard way? I guess for me, it's that it all really comes down to understanding risk and pricing. You know, it's people kind of dress up a lot of things in business as, you know, being complicated or new. There isn't really anything new in my mind. You have, um, you have supply and demand that determines price, and you have you know risk-adjusted investment. And if you understand those drivers, it kind of keeps you away from the get-rich-quick and the you know the kind of uh, sort of foolish investments a lot of people see. And and it kind of I don't want to say it makes you jaded because that's not fair. It makes you wary of things that seem too good to be true and seem it keeps you from extrapolating poorly. I suppose as I as I said I've done where you know and. Obviously, in real estate, it comes kind of naturally. I think that's one of the benefits of investing in real estate is it can be very explicit. You know, and when people say, "Oh, you know, how come, um, you know, mortgage rates you can you know borrow for less than other things?" Like, well, collateral, obviously, it's real asset. You know, this and that, and you know, we, because there's tons of comps and it's comparable, and we do things a certain way. Uh, that's why it's you know a lower interest rate. You know, and you kind of when you think about things in just those kind of high level terms, where you say, "Oh, you know, why is." housing expensive. It's like, well, in part because we're really supply constrained and, you know, that's, that's how supply and demand works. Um, it kind of, uh, you know, you don't have to overthink a lot of the stuff. If you kind of get back to the basics and go from first principles, uh, you find most things really just kind of make sense. And if they don't make sense of first principles, it's probably because you're being scammed. So yeah, that's kind of, a, <laughs> that's sort of the test. Nice. Nice. Well, I, I certainly appreciate that one. To me, that sounds not like, I don't recall the word you used, uh, cynicism or whatever. It sounds like wisdom. <laughs> it, it sounds more like wisdom than, than anything else. Yeah. I yeah. I mean, that. I get it. It's it, the way that I'd always think about it is that, uh, you know, and maybe this is sort of a separate thing, but is that, um, you know, honesty lowers your cost of capital. And, you know, it's easy to try and kind of put, and I, I think about a lot because obviously I'm in in sort of a sales and growth kind of role today, but you know, you can sometimes get a short-term gain by kind of fudging the numbers or pushing through or not managing expectations. But in the long term, the more honest you are, the more transparent you are, the more kind of open about the mechanics and kind of open book uh, you are with investments and with investors and partners, the more likely people are going to take your word, lend to you for less, you know, and it's, yeah, it's just honestly makes that lowers your cost of capital. That's it. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for joining us today. If folks want to 
reach out if they want to track down pad split and learn more or anything like that they're interested in learning more how can they uh hunt that down yep just uh easiest way is just go to padsplit.com and sign up uh if you do a member of our uh our sales team will reach out to you quite promptly i'm sure uh and to reach out to me directly is easy i'm just frank at padsplit.com so i'm not not hard to find Awesome. Well, Frank, it's been great getting to know you, learning more, and thank you for coming on the show today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much. Five stars if you don't mind. That helps us because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem because they get to see that you're engaging with the content. And so do I. And I'm always honest with you guys. Your reviews give me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll catch you here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.